0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Australian Mark Sundin joins me for today's episode of Paddling the Blue, and Mark is one of the founders of Expedition Kayaks along with Rob Mercer. Mark and Rob have been responsible for bringing great kit to Australia for several years, along with designing their own line of boats. And Mark shares why Sydney is such an incredible place to paddle, recounts the story of an adventure to the remote North Reef Light with just a few short 70k crossings, and gives us his best advice for improving as a paddler. And a big thank you goes out to Mick O'Mara from episode 35 for recommending Mark. And with that, enjoy today's episode with Mark Sundon. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining Paddling in the Blue today. No worries, John. Good to talk to you, mate. Oh, good to talk to you as well. I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and chat with you here. So Mark, tell us a little bit about how you got started paddling.
1: Well, mate, I was a a reasonably elite level sportsman, uh, certainly playing cricket, which uh, anyone listening in the UK or India will will know about, maybe not so many in America and also rugby. And my girlfriend at the time, now my my partner and the mother of my three kids got me into bushwalking um, towards the end of my cricket days. We used to head off once a year around the world to the Himalayas or Patagonia or Tasmania or New Zealand doing that and then kind of realised that um, $10,000 a year on a holiday overseas was getting a bit out of hand Um, and a mate suggested going sea hiking so we hired a double at um, a funny old fella's joint up on the northern beaches of Sydney, went for a paddle which involved a, a, a really cool traverse around a headland with some swell pouring in and I was kind of hooked from there, I joined up with the local club. I ran into, on the first day I was there, a fellow called Rob Mercer, who uh, since become one of my best friends and, and uh, expedition mate and my business partner. He must have seen that I had a bit of ability, sporting ability, and, and paid me a bit of extra attention, showing me how to paddle, and uh, I guess it all went from there. I went through the club's grading system, whatever that was at the time, um, ended up being an instructor and that was sea kayaking, and, and obviously in the days that have followed that, with the boom in Australia of surf ski paddling, I've kind of shifted into pretty much anything that floats.
0: So you hired that double, and that didn't turn you away from kayaking?
1: <laughs> no, no. Um, like, it's funny, Nicole got me into it. Um, yeah. But the moment I started to, I realised I could go out and do some really cool things on the ocean. She was more interested in lice lakes and rivers and... uh and then kids came along and um, she really didn't paddle much at all after that. She's, as Rob will tell you, she's a lot better at it than I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we actually, we actually bought a boat and it was a, a double, a funny old clunky uh, Australian made boat called the Estuary Double and uh, it was about 150 centimetres wide and you, could, you couldn't paddle clash and I think that was a fair old introduction to, to not, not getting into any arguments because we weren't whacking each other with our paddles. But it was the last double
0: I owned for a very, very long time, John. <laughs> well, I'm glad it uh, glad it got you started, and glad it didn't turn you away. So, tell us a little bit about the paddler's paradise that is Sydney, Australia.
1: Ah, oh, mate. Well, I mean, we we really are blessed where we live here. We have three major openings to the ocean, which don't involve getting out through breaking surf. Uh, that's Sydney Harbour, Botany Bay. Port Hacking and, and to the north, uh, Pitwater, they're all within about a 60 kilometre stretch, which spans the Sydney metropolitan area. So if we want to go out into the middle of something very bad and big, we can do it without getting crunched uh, through surf. And it means that t- to turn yourself into an ocean paddler in Sydney, you get to you get to kind of see it and float around in it, but you don't get smashed by it very often unless you get things wrong. We've got a couple of I wouldn't call them tide races, but they're sections where big, big bays or harbours empty out through a narrow channel and form a, a wave that, you know, is green and sometimes goes for two minutes that you can learn to surf on. We've obviously got all the Sydney beaches, but you can't really take your kayaks there unless it's a real small day or there's no one around, which isn't very often, as you can imagine, a big, big city of 4 million people like Sydney. The wind blows fairly reliably from some fairly... You know, manageable directions where we can teach people to paddle downwind in Sydney really easily from any direction, more or less. Uh, a little bit like the South Africans uh, around Cape Town and, and their coast, we, we, uh, we have a series of runs we do, especially downwind when the wind's blowing. And as well as that, forgetting about the ocean paddling, we've got uh, long internal waterways that reach back to the Blue Mountains, which are about 70 kilometres to the west of the city. So you could spend your whole life paddling around Sydney, never see the ocean and have a pretty pretty interesting time of it. Uh, really, really is a beautiful place to paddle. Lots of big cliffs. You know, people are quite surprised when they come and paddle here for the first time about the amount of rebound and bounce that fires back off our cliffs. And it's a bit intimidating when you first get out into it. But as we, as we sort of grow accustomed to it and work out how it works, it's actually, you know, really good fun. But the wind is what does, does the place for us as far as the ocean goes. We get, we get great winds blowing.
0: So that's what uh, turned you to surf ski then?
1: I, I look. I remember when Justine, uh, yeah, Justine, on one of your podcasts, right? She's, sure. She's the one who really popularised sea kayaking and turned it into something that, for me, as a guy in his 30s at the time, I thought, oh, that looks cool. I didn't really want to go. Hang out with a bunch of old fellas with beards and 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 endlessly talk about tow lines, you know. <laughs> I actually I actually wanted to go out and rip into some 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 waves and and go places fast. And we didn't have tide races, and we, we've got rocks, but we've also got Tasman Sea swell. So it'd be nuts to try and do what the tsunami ranges or some of the guys do around your coast where they have a very manageable. Bit of swell, you know. Our our, our, there's very few days in the year when you wouldn't get turned into a a rather bloody ball if you had a crack at some of our cliffs and rocks. So, so we don't have that stuff. But what we do have is reliable sea breezes and big southerly busters. And and our play is what you can do downwind. Um, You know, pop your car twenty kilometres at one end and another one at the other, and paddle out, turn left, and an hour and a half later you'll land. You know, quite a long way down the coast, having sort of surfed your way, uh, surfed your way along. So um, surf ski does that a lot more efficiently than the sea kayaks did at the time. You know, really back in the day, we were paddling and importing Brit boats, you know, Nord caps and, and explorers and the like. The first time I jumped in a ski and went downwind, it was like, oh, hang on, How, where's this thing been? <laughs> and uh, as, as long as they're nice and stable, because, you, you know, you, you, you have a hard time paddling the elite ones... Yeah, you, 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 would, you just wouldn't believe how much fun it is. Of course, in the, in the preceding years, very clever designers have come up with fast sea kayaks that actually do that pretty well. And uh, having studied them and paddled them and sold them even for the last 15 years, we, we had a crack and designed our own, which does the same sort of thing. So nowadays, you don't have to jump in a surf ski around Sydney to get a good downwind run. In fact, we have a very big downwind paddling culture in, you know, amongst the, the ocean paddling sea kayakers.
0: So what was missing in the market? That uh, So that, that's the Audax, right, the boat that you designed?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, that's okay. right. We've, we've got a couple of others now that we've also released that are, that are variants on it for smaller people and one that's a bit more stable for smaller people. But yeah, that, that's the idea.
0: Okay. So um, what, what that, was missing in the yeah. market that, uh, that drove you to say, We're gonna, we need to design our own?
1: Well, when the Rockpool Taran came out, we jumped all over it because before that, we'd been paddling, this is Rob Rob and I, Rob Mercer and I, mm-hmm. we'd been paddling the um, the Valley Rapier, which was called a rapier. And mate, it looked like a rapier. It looked like a medieval torture device, but it was fast and pretty unstable. And we loved it. But the idea of getting out and doing a long trip in it was was fairly, you know, fanciful. Then the Rockpool Taran turned up and um, you had to concentrate when you paddled it. It, it suddenly opened up all this range like we thought nothing in that thing of going 80 k's downwind 80 kilometers downwind on a big expedition with a boat full of gear and historically people paddling 50 or 60 would crawl out of their boats and kiss the sand and write a novel about the whole experience <laughs> whereas you know we, we did a couple of big trips in that, that style of boat and um Mate, we were sitting on the beach at three o'clock slapping each other on the back, wishing there was another island another 30 kilometres down the track. <laughs> um, so, I suppose um, some of those boats I considered if, if, you, if you couldn't turn around in rough water and open up the day hatch and pull something out that might save your bacon or deal with something, then I kind of figured that probably wasn't really an expedition kayak that was suited to everybody. And at the time, I'm, you know, I'm talking, I'm paddling some pretty skinny unstable skis and I couldn't really do it. So the idea of the Audax was something that was a little more predictable, same sort of genre. Our our take I guess, I guess okay. our take on that kind of thing. We weren't trying to be better or um, reinvent any wheels. We have exposure to surf skis and nowadays surf skis are very stable especially the entry level boats and in Australia we have a great tradition of surf ski paddling and I know sea kayakers tend to look to Greenland and the British, with their skeg boats and things, is the, the place where sea kayaking came from. But we we figure, hell, we've been paddling surf skis in Australia for a very long time, and that's a fair old bit of our paddling heritage. And if some of that design ethos could be turned towards a sea kayak, then it's kind of typically Australian. So I suppose wishy-washy stuff like that, really, I'm not into. but But that's probably the genesis of where it came from and why we wanted to do it.
0: All right, so a uh, kind of a, a marriage of the of the Terran and, and uh, the type of paddling that you do created the boat that met the needs for your area and, and what you're looking to do.
1: So. Yeah, mate, I'd say, I'd say 10 great fast boats went into our thinking for, yeah. for, the, for the Audax. Yeah, I reckon Epic came up with a ski called the V8 Pro a couple of years before we, well, we were developing the Audax at the time and they managed to make our surf ski suddenly quite long and quite skinny, but ridiculously stable. And um, whilst you, you can't just put a cockpit and a set of hatches on a surf ski, it, that just totally doesn't work because it's meant to have the weight right where you're sitting. We were quite curious as to how they managed to do that, how they distributed volume through the hull. And that gave us a few clues on how to build our own sea kayak that did a similar thing as well. So, you know, we imported 60 or 70 kayaks over the last 12, 13 years, Rob and I. And he the way he puts it is we've bought ourselves an education. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So speaking of education, I mean, you've done uh, quite a few expeditions yourself, and I know one of them was your North Reef Expedition. So tell us a little bit about that and, uh, and why it's significant. I'm not sure that uh, most of the world would understand it. Uh,
1: oh, I don't know, mate. Significant's a funny word, isn't it? <laughs> I am, um, you know, uh, as I said, I'm not, not one for flowery language when it comes to my paddling. I just want to make sure I crack the next wave and, and it works. First of all, we did it with our great paddling mate, uh, Chris James. Um, Chris and I were very time poor with young families at the time. We didn't have time to go circumnavigate an island or fly to Greenland or or some huge epic traditional expedition. Rob had spotted this chain of islands stretching off the top of Fraser Island and heading north out to this incredibly remote lighthouse, which is about 130 kilometres off the coast of... um, of Rockhampton, which is right on the Tropic of Capricorn. Thought it might be a good trip. Uh, three of our, three fellas had a crack at it the year before, including one of our really good mates, Gary Forrest. They didn't quite manage to pull it off. Well, it wasn't really their goal anyway, but they were the first guys to get out there. And with these new fast boats that we had, we thought it might be worth, you know, really trying to tear it in half. So yeah, it was, it wasn't for any cause. It wasn't for any sort of, it was just three old blokes having fun, I suppose. But it did involve some very long crossings in some very wild water and hitting some islands that were a metre high, sometimes 95 kilometres apart. So navigation and that kind of thing is not really my strong point, John. All right. <laughs> I, tend to, I tend to make fun of anyone who's trying to navigate things too carefully, which is to the horror of the people I tend to paddle with. And, uh, <laughs> but um, Chris, Chris and Rob did a pretty good job hitting these islands across tidal sections that weren't all that well charted. And my, you know, like, my my lasting memory of it was just wild, big, breaking seas every day for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 kilometres over your right shoulder, sail up, charging into big holes. And then eventually you'd spot this tiny, tiny little tower on an island, you know, six or seven kil- kilometres away, because that's about how close you got before you could actually see anything. So most of the time you're in the big blue ocean and it was the, I think it's the Coral Sea actually from memory. There's big animals, there's tiger sharks especially around you the whole time. You know, you, you sit still on the hour to check on your nav or have a goo or just to, just to have a quick chat about where we're going and uh, there'd be a tiger shark right there having a look at you. We had humpback whales come across us and that's a, that's an amazing thing when you're in, in the middle of nowhere when you can't see land to have a humpback, big big bunch of humpbacks pop up under you. And then when you finally got to the island, you were on this Robinson Crusoe paradise: coral cay, white sand, little personia trees growing on them. Usually a maybe a ten or fifteen kilometre round atoll going around the island, which you had to, of course, work out your way over. So quite often we found ourselves crash landing over a coral reef into a lagoon because there was no way in otherwise. And yeah, just a just an awesome adventure, you know. And funnily enough, never done again. No one ever had a go at it after we did it, which tells you something about the committing distances more than anything else, I think.
0: Yeah, you said multiple crossings of 70 to 90K?
1: Yeah, it was um, the first, well, the first day was, um, we actually got a boat, a fishing boat charter that took us out to Fraser Island because we didn't want to paddle this big bay called Harvey Bay um, to get out to the, the top of Fraser Island, which is the world's biggest sand island. From the top of Fraser Island out to our first stop at Lady Elliot Island, which is a beautiful little eco resort, and it's the start of the Great Barrier Reef. That was ninety-two kilometres in a straight line, and it runs. That that stretch of water is the the confluence of the world's largest sand spit with Pacific swells booming in from the east, a huge draining bay and Harvey Bay coming out behind you and ebbing and fly, flooding across you, and the birthplace of the East Australian Current. So. Chuck 20 knots, you know, up your hooter, <laughs> <laughs> heading that way over 95 k's. You can imagine what happens. And it was, you know, mate, one of the great days paddling, really. Just just fantastic. From there, I think it's another 40-something out to another beautiful little called called um, uh, Lady Musgrave Island, which is a famous island because they ma- ma- mined it almost into extinction um, for bat guano. Um, oh, bird guano, sorry. Uh, then, then from that point to another amazing Australian tropical island in the Great Barrier Reef that's very famous, Heron Island, it's 88 kilometres, and you're not allowed to land anywhere. It's classified pink zone. Um, in fact, you're not really even allowed to go there, but we got special permission from um, the marine parks people on the condition, this is quite funny, <laughs> the guy said, listen, I don't want you blokes turning this thing into another bath straight, all right? Because it's not. It's a dangerous place and we don't want a whole bunch of people like you coming out there. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to, when we finally wrote it up, we had to, I think we only had to mention the distances and that might have done a fair job of putting people off. What's a pink Um, It's a marine conservation area. So okay. no, definitely no fishing, but you have to have special permission to go in there as well. The guy did say you can go and stand on this reef called Fitzroy Reef if you get there at low tide. And we kind of planned to do that, except there was about a four metre swell breaking over the top of it. We snuck around to uh, the far side where there was a blast channel through so yachts could go into this big reef lagoon and and anchor. But the water was about a bit over waist deep and there were a lot of big tiger sharks. So I remember looking at Chris and saying, "Righto, mate, here's our stretch point. Off you go." <laughs> he, uh, yeah, so we didn't we we stretched our imaginations, mate. Not our uh, not our limbs. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So just just a just a, a, a beautiful beautiful places to land at, and that's great. You know the tropical v- images in your head of the islands, but really, mate, I'm a paddler, and the paddling was awesome like the downwind days. People talk about doing the Molokai race in Hawaii where they go 52 kilometers downwind, the unofficial world championship of surf ski paddling. Well, we pretty much got to do that every day for uh, for, for eight days on the water. I'll never forget how cool that was to, to be, you know, tearing it up out there in the middle of nowhere with no land in sight most of the time.
0: That sounds like an amazing time. So over yeah eight, yeah over eight days, how much distance did you cover?
1: Uh, about four hundred k's, something like that. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not a big one for numbers or uh, or stats or anything like that. You know, I, I um, somewhere down there in our reports of that trip, there's all the numbers recorded because we did go very fast. You know, I remember getting to Heron Island, which was eighty-eight kilometers in uh, nine hours we just wished we could have kept going it was such a great day (laughs) um but in a fully laden sea kayak you know that's people people didn't really believe it to be honest they uh they i think if you if you look around most sea kayak expeditions anywhere in the whole world of significance people really do struggle to break five five and a half kilometers an hour oh yeah definitely but yeah but that's that's what these new boats gave us the, the the range especially if things lined up our way, you know, we really could start to look at you know, pinpoints on a map a long, long way away and, and comfortably get there with a rather, I wouldn't call it a new approach because guys like Andrew McCauley were doing it you know, well before we were, but, but you know, wing paddles, a more aggressive attitude in rough water you know, and, and fitness. I've always said if, you, if you're fit and you've got a good attitude and you get your ducks in one line with your paddle stroke, then you should be a pretty damn fine sea kayaker if you put your mind to it. Yeah, probably probably a bit of my sporting background. Chris Chris James, uh, you know, was a wonderful fella, real high achiever type guy. Used to analyse things, um, but also incredibly fit and and one of those guys who concentrated very heavily on technique all the time. So with Rob, who's you know probably the best paddler I've ever seen in anything really, we were quite a quite a team. And we, we did we did have great days on the water, big big fast wild. We'd call them a ball tearing day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like <clears> a good time. Now you mentioned an, an island that was almost mined into a mined away for bird guano. I never knew that was a, a, a hot yeah. commodity. Well, all
1: the seabirds nest on these islands, and um, they are just little drops in the in the middle of a huge blue ocean on the on the Great Barrier Reef. They sit there all day and do what they do. I guess some smart guy figured out they had some va- that had some value. I think it was the phosphorus, maybe in the in the guano. There's some there's some chemical element to it that was valuable at the time. This was in the 1940s. Um, funnily enough, there's another island there that during World War II they bombed in half. <laughs> oh, when you get to it, you can actually paddle straight through the middle of these two halves of an island, which once were one. But of course, you can't land on it in case something you know blows you to pieces. Yeah unexploded ordnance and things so they're quite interesting islands very rarely visited uh you know other than the commercial resorts which are still out there
0: so you mentioned uh the conservation officer or whoever it was on the the pink zone island said that they don't want to turn it into another bass Strait, but you've done the bass Strait as well so tell us a little bit about the bass Strait.
1: yeah look that's that's kind of a, that's that's kind of the other Way. That, that's the, that, I guess that's probably, in my mind at least, that was always something that I never really was that fussed on because I know it's a slog. You've got this huge, shallow strait between Australia and Tasmania and the water drains out of it and into it from the east to the west every day. The predominant winds across you, the big bad ones are westerlies um, and you're running north-south. I knew there was no beautiful downwind runs there. That was put your head down, get to an island, you know, not, not huge distances, 50, 40, 50 k's, one, one big crossing of about 65, but across a, a waterway that is renowned for being particularly nasty in the wrong conditions. Traditionally Australian sea kayakers paddle across there in calm water and it's so well forecast now that you can do that. You can watch your weather, sit it out on these gorgeous islands and wait and paddle across without seeing a wave if you're smart. But we decided to do it a couple of years ago, again with Rob, with uh, Gary Forrest that I mentioned earlier, who was the f- among the first guys to paddle that, that uh, section of the Capricornia Cays out to Lady Elliot Island. Um, my great mate, Bob Turner, whose life goal when he started paddling, day one, was to paddle across Bass Strait. And another mate of ours who's a, a returned soldier, uh, Andrew Trickett, who, uh, who was a pretty pretty rugged character. With that collection of fellas, there's no way I was going to miss out on going because they're just great blokes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice paddle because the, uh, the islands across Eastern Bass Strait are um, the remnants of a land bridge, a historic land bridge that used to exist between Australia and, the, and Tasmania. They're these huge, tall... You know, the one in the middle, Deal Island, is uh, it's like Jurassic Park. You know, 400-metre cliffs, sandy little coves, hardly any people, just a caretaker. Some of them are un- uninhabited. You've got a couple of big crossings to make off the bottom end of Australia. Well, I shouldn't say Australia, John, because Tasmania is part of Australia, and they get cranky when you do that. <laughs> bottom end of the mainland Australia. <laughs> and then you get eventually to Flinders Island, which is a big, long island, and has a whole series of, of little islands between there and Tassie. Again, beautiful, beautiful islands. The water, the, the, the paddling ain't so good, because if you took on big stuff in Bass Strait, you'd be a bit stupid. We actually did. We took on a forecast that was in Sydney would be fine. We do it all the time. But in Bass Strait, if it says it's gonna be 20 knots, then it can easily be 30 at some point and for an extended period. Uh, but it was all going our way. We're all good downwind paddlers. We figured we'd have a go. And we ended up in a gale for four hours out there, which was, um, mate, to this day, the greatest day of paddling I've ever done. That mm. was a uh, wild, dramatic, Black water, waves breaking over our heads. You know, we're very good, very strong, very skillful bunch of paddlers. So we never had a problem. But you close your eyes and think about it, it was a pretty amazing sight to see Bastrade in full, stri- full flight.
0: So your initial picture that you painted of it, of strong beam winds coming at you from the, from the sides, just didn't sound all that appealing?
1: Nah. As I said, you know, you could land me on Monaco every night. And put me on an expedition. But if it was dull water in between, I couldn't care less. <laughs> I, 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 I'm a paddler. <laughs> you know, the bushwalking on water thing. I, I love my camping. I love being in wild places. But really, what I love is the ocean when it's when it's firing up. And, and uh, you know, you a good challenge on the water. I, I could camp in a car park, if you like, at the end of that. But it, it, was, it, it wasn't as dull as I thought out there. We had a couple of flat days. We had that wild day uh, where, where we were caught in a gale. We had a fantastic sort of escape off an island on a day when things were firing up as well. And then we had some headwinds that weren't, weren't a lot of fun. But surprisingly, for, for, a, for a princess like me who likes a downwinder, I, I didn't mind them at all. I quite <laughs> enjoyed the headwinds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, better than, better than the, uh, the beam wind coming at you from the sides. Certainly. Yeah,
1: mate. Even there, okay. We we use we use we. we you don't get to use them as straight much, but we usually carry a sail. And um, okay, even I, th- I think I heard Justine mentioning it in her her chat with you. If you, if you put them up in a side wind, and pack your boat properly, so stern heavy, then what happens? The 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 force of the wind on the on the sail drives your bow down and takes all the weight out of the boat. So. Beam winds in many ways, especially if you've got a sail, they're pretty easy to handle. They, they they turn your heavily laden expedition boat into something that feels like a um, you know, like a normal boat. So yeah, no, any direction's good. Headwinds are never fun. You mustn't enjoy headwind, John. Surely. No, no. Where are you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was in one of those this weekend. It wasn't pleasant.
1: Yeah. So. Well, there you go.
0: So, what advice would you give to someone who's planning a big paddling objective of their own?
1: Look, we just had. Four, five people come to us in October. So that's uh, six months ago now, and ask us about paddling Bass Strait. Because obviously, since we did it and did a nice movie about it, um, a lot of a lot of people have been interested. Not necessarily traditionally sea kayakers either. People who are coming from other backgrounds, wanting to get into um, some sort of endeavor, a challenge. They they said we've never paddled before. We want to paddle Bass Strait in five months' time, or, or faster if we can. So. Rob and I had a think about it, and we put them in surf skis to begin with. And the reason for that was to get them sitting up straight, to get their blade in the water in the right place and out in the right water, to teach them rough water paddling, aggressive rough water paddling in a craft that would respond, and to try and get their forward paddling strokes perfect. Because obviously even in rough water, your best brace stroke is your forward paddling stroke. You know We don't do a lot of bracing in surf skis uh, at all. You just reach out and have another swing if you think you're having a problem. From there, we took them out on a couple of wild days in sea kayaks and taught them rescue drills and showed them how to manage one another and look after one another, you know, manoeuvring in, in wild water because, you know, the, the, I think sometimes sea kayakers obsess about boat control strokes. The simple fact is you, you need them so you can get alongside someone when there's a problem and all the rest of it is just sort of show pony stuff. So that, that, was, that was our process for getting these guys up to speed. And then they sat down and we went through the navigation. Obviously, that wasn't my strong point. We left that one to Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and um, sure enough, you know, fit. They, they, were, they had a background as club triathletes. So not, you know, superstars, but fit, motivated, athletic from their late 20s to mid 40s, I guess. And sure enough... 5 months after taking their first paddle strokes, they crossed Bass Strait in great style. They actually went faster than we did. So I thought that was a pretty good blueprint if you're coming from nothing. If you are already a sea kayaker and you want to go and do something really committing with big crossings and things, then usually you've got to one learn a bit of a bit of historical stuff. You've you've got to go and get your forward paddling strokes sorted often sea kite people aren't the right people to, to do that through. You're, you're better off going down to a racing club um, or a surf club and having someone down there look at you or get a good flat water coach. Because after all, you know, the, 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 the secret to a, to a successful big trip like that is efficiency, getting off the water, feeling great, ready to go the next day, no injuries. So, yeah, I guess I, I, over the years people said, yeah, you're a sportsman, of course you'd say that. <laughs> But I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that's a, a flawed approach for people who want to get out and do good things. Mate, and forget doing good things. Just go paddling, you know, go paddling well in, in the ocean because it's not a very forgiving place, um, but it is a hell of a playground. Really, it is. It's, a, it's an awesome place to go out and have fun in. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's that, that probably it in a nutshell, John. Get fit, get your ducks in one line, and then a bit of gravel in your guts. So yeah. That helps.
0: <laughs> yeah, be efficient with your technique, good fitness, be methodical about your approach, and and get get good coaching.
1: Yep, yep. So. In a nutshell, not traditionally things that sea kayakers have done. Found it really strange when I came across from a reasonably elite level of sport to find a sport where you were as good as you said you were, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to like <laughs> how good you were. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of strange, and I I also found it weird that that um. You could talk to four people of note and they all had a different opinion on how you were supposed to paddle as opposed to when you learn to play rugby. It wouldn't matter if you're in London, Auckland, San Francisco, Sydney or or Fiji, you know. Everyone would tell you exactly the same way to do it without fail. And then when I realised that in paddle disciplines where there's a stopwatch that tells you how good you are, nobody debates how you paddle. There is just one efficient way and there's a whole bunch of inefficient ways and they're all desperately trying to make sure they do it the efficient way. So, yeah, it was a sea hiking. traditional sea hiking to me has always been a, um, a funny, mythical kind of place.
0: So what did you bring with you from rugby and cricket that you applied to paddle sports?
1: Probably a team ethos. Probably the idea that you look after everyone you're out there paddling with and you hope they're looking after you. I think really... Ocean paddling is 100% a team game. I know, I know we you know, lionise the soloists a little bit like the way mountaineers, mountain climbing people do, but to me, uh, it's Rob, again, one of Rob's great sayings when you go on a trip, be safe. Hopefully pull off the objective of the trip in good style and, and come back better mates than you were when you left. That's team sport right there as well. That's um, the ethos of of looking after people, making sure you all come back safe, have a great time, big slaps on the back at the end and have a beer to celebrate. I I think they're probably the the things that I learned the most out of playing team sports was um, it's about the shared experience, the shared achievement. That's what gives you mates that you run into 20 years later and it's just like you're still sitting in the dressing room after the game.
0: All definitely good advice. Like you said, come back Better mates when you come back than you when you left. That's uh... Yeah,
1: well, they say they say pick your expedition mates carefully, right? And too often you see it all go pear-shaped for that very reason. It's important that the, the people I've been on big trips with are lifetime friends of mine, you know, absolutely lifetime friends of mine. What a great thing to do, do something like that that gives you people that are going to be your friends for your whole life. I mean, how lucky are you?
0: That's truth. So what's next for you?
1: Um... Look, there's a few, there's a few fantastic places around Australia that that uh, provide some pretty challenging paddling that I'd love to get out and do one day. I've, I've got I've got a young family, uh, you know, two daughters and a little fella, and uh, I don't get the opportunities to go and do consistently do big trips, which is part of the reason why I'm on a ski a lot because it's sort of instant gratification, it doesn't require a lot of gear or or you know even planning most of the time. But so, Kangaroo Island, which is the huge big island off the south coast of south australia a goal of one has always been to circumnavigate that particular island that's got some very big unlandable stretches of 60 or 70 kilometers and the southern ocean pounding into the back end of it so that that's a kind of cool place and i think probably the ultimate would be to circumnavigate tasmania having paddled across bass strait done a little bit of paddling in tassie that really is something else you can paddle 10 kilometers on the east coast of tasmania down on the Tasman Peninsula or Bruni Island, and and see enough to see in a lifetime with big cliffs and pillars, and it's pretty fearsome on the wrong day. Remote, probably everything you'd learned in your entire paddling life would go into a successful circumnavigation of Tasmania.
0: Both sound like exciting places.
1: Yeah, and of course the next time a nor'easter blows in Sydney. I'll be out there having a crack at that too, downwind. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, forget the forget the big things. It's the, it's the little things. I've got a great bunch of people I paddle with around here who have a great attitude as well and uh, we enjoy one another's company and um, it's a little bit like being in a footy team, I've got to say. It's a, it's a nice uh, community and everyone does their paddling and paddles hard and they seem to all improve, which makes everyone safer and uh, it's, a, it's a nice little circle of... Reinforcement.
0: So, speaking of friends, you mentioned at uh, your first club outing, you had the opportunity to meet Rob Mercer, who's turned into a lifelong friend and your business partner. So, tell us uh, about Rob and about the founding of Expedition Kayaks.
1: Rob is a, I'd call him a kayak tragic. He's the last guy off the water pretty much anytime you ever go for a paddle. Because he is who he is, people ask him about this or ask him about that. How's my stroke look? Can you have a quick look at my role? And he will sit there. Sometimes, frustratingly for me, for an hour with people tuning them up, he, he just loves it and lives and breathes it. He's a walking encyclopedia on it. As good a bloke as you'd ever meet, a great guy to paddle with. And we, we hit it off pretty early on when I first started paddling. And I'd, I'd been invited by the Australian Trade Commission to go to the outdoor retailer show in Salt Lake City, oh, 2007, to exhibit my... At the time, I had a range of outdoor gear and furniture. And I thought, rather than go and exhibit, I might go and exhibit and get some orders and then what on earth am I going to do with an American market? <laughs> <So> <laughs> I thought, I'll go and have a look. So I flew over and I pretty quickly worked out that I didn't want to sell anything to America. But there was, Valley Sea Kayaks were there and uh, Sean Morley was exhibiting on the lake at Salt Lake. I didn't, I didn't know who Sean was at the time, but I wandered over sheepishly and said, oh, I'm a, I'm a kayaker, can I have a go on one of those? And I took out a Nordcap, I think, and turned a few circles and rolled it a couple of times and paddled it up and down. and Anyway, when I came back in, he said, you, where, who are you? You can paddle. What are you, what are you? And I said, oh, I'm in Australia. And he just looked at me and said, you guys should import these boats into Australia. And I thought, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to my hotel room that night and um, I rang Rob, who was on an expedition to Cape York, to the very top of Australia, one of the most remote places on earth, really. As luck would have it, he had his phone on, in range, and uh, he answered. (laughs) And I said, hey, why don't we import a container of valley kayaks? And he said, oh, yeah, they're great boats. They're a bit mythical. We've never been able to get them. Why not? I'll, I'll I'll go in. How much? How many? Anyway, that container lasted about three weeks when it arrived, and we got another container. Started to think about what we should probably call ourselves if we were going to make a business of it. Thought we might get a free boat out of it here and there. And... I don't know what are we now 13 years later we're um we're probably not the maybe not the biggest kayak company in australia because we don't bother with recreational boats and things at all or stand-ups or anything like that but up, but in the at the upper end of the market we're probably the guys who people come to mate it's been a lot of fun they being able to make a bit of bit of a crust out of out of uh paddling and talking to paddlers all day and that shifted off into helping Rob design boats and gear and you know lately we've shifted a lot of our manufacturing of products to Australia, develop things and yeah that, that, that's I guess that's the short version of how it all went, been great fun. Rob's credibility is uh, you know he, he really is an impressive fella to talk to about paddling.
0: Well that certainly sounds like the dream scenario to create a business.
1: Yeah well I had three little kids at the time you know I think Nicole reckons I probably did it just so I could go paddling <laughs> and I think I reckon she might have a point I'd say yeah look sorry it's a test
0: paddle I going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so why wasn't anybody else importing product at that end of the market until 2007 when you decided to? Well
1: people had had a little go and not been too successful by doing it in bits and pieces and I just figured if we're going to do it I, I had a well, you know, a fairly successful big merchandising business at the time, and I, I did a lot of importing, and I, I I knew that if you went half-hearted at things, you, you probably stuff them up. So, we just went in boots and all, and and uh, made a good job of it. I think the market had never really seen British skeg boats before much, if only the odd person who'd imported one here and there, and very fortuitously, our branching out into those tyler boats coincided with Justine's wonderful videos, This is mm-hmm. the Sea. And suddenly there was there was a you know a marketing base for it. People were interested in it. The kayaks available in Australia at the time were very much hard tracking, straight lining, A to B style kayaks that weren't very interesting to paddle by comparison. It was pretty easy to chuck someone in a beautiful Nordcap or later on the tide race boats and they straight away could tell the difference between something that moved around like they did and the things that they were paddling so yeah it was a lot, it was a bit of luck it's always the same eh? You, you, yeah you get a bit of luck in these things too and uh, we certainly owe a debt to Justine for what she did to, to popularize sea kayaking
0: yeah she sure did change the face of sea kayaking
1: yeah absolutely she did absolutely
0: yeah. so Mark how could uh, listeners reach you if they have additional questions
1: Mate, just through our website, expeditioncoax.com. We've we've got a, well, we had a a blog that was really popular for years until people stopped reading blogs. You can get onto our social media, our Facebook and Instagram from there. Our uh, podcast, which is not quite as well organised as yours, John. It's, uh, (laughs) I think, probably mentioned to you, when you come on my podcast, I give you beer. It's (laughs) 10 o'clock in the morning here, so, you know, that was a bit bit of bad timing. (laughs) It's yeah, a good our, show, through though. through our website. It is. Oh, yours is. I don't know about mine.
0: Oh, yours is too. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Like I said, I've <laughs> listened to some of the episodes myself, so good stuff.
1: Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, expeditionkayaks.com. It's, oh, um, yeah. it's, it's a, yeah, it, there was never a plan for it. It's, uh, there's a fair bit of information there and uh, hopefully a few good yarns.
0: I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and I appreciate to to hear about your stories and about paddling in Australia. And I've got one final question that I'd like to ask all of our guests. And uh, Mark, that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue?
1: Well, being a male-centric sport for so many years, that's all changing now. And I think in my eyes, um, you know, people like Freya have, have really, really, and Justine have really changed that whole perception but here in Australia, uh, there's a lady called Sean Gresser who uh, not only has she done some ridiculously outrageous, bold things in her sea kike, but she's, she's got a lovely attitude and a lovely uh, way of describing what she does on the sea. She was the first woman to paddle solo across Bass Strait and then topped that off a couple of years ago by paddling directly across Bass Strait without stopping 200 and something kilometres, which has only been done before by two big burly fellas. So she would be a good guest. She's very engaging. She's uh, delightful really, with a a bit of a hard edge to her as well when it comes to taking on big challenges on the ocean.
0: Well, I will definitely reach out to to Shan and we'll talk to her about her her solos and her direct crossing of the Bass Strait.
1: Nice, you won't be disappointed.
0: Excellent. Well, Mark, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to to talk to you today and to share your story with our our listeners. So thank you.
1: Uh, Mate, my pleasure. So, so good to hear an informative sea kayaking podcast. You know, There's not a lot of stuff out there and uh, this, this is a great one and it's been great to be on, John. Good on you. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Mark really was a blast to talk to. He has such an enthusiasm for paddling, and it was really fun to hear about Sydney, Australia, about how he and Rob have built expedition kayaks into a great business, and about their North Reef Light Expedition. Those were some serious crossings. Our next episode is going to take us to Iceland to meet Vega Gretarstrj, and we're going to hear about her story, aptly named Against the Current. She brings a great message of perseverance and on living your life on your own terms. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue.